God, we gather in this place, and uh, Lord, many of us uh, walk in here burdened and weary or just exhausted, maybe uh, feeling beaten up by the world. Lord, we come into this place, and Lord, we want to find rest in you. God, we want to be fed by your word. And so, God, I pray that you would, you would feed us today. I pray that your, your word would truly do the work today. God, that you would meet us exactly where we are, wherever that is today, and that you would turn our gaze upward towards you. Lord, that you'd help us to see Jesus so that, Lord, we would walk out of here not only changed but refreshed. We would not only walk out of here transformed, but, Lord, ready to face a week because of the word that you've spoken to us today. So would you work? Would you help us today? Aid us by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As a pastor, I, I hear a lot of different ways that people uh, articulate uh, their spirituality. Uh, I've heard so many different ways that people kind of explain um, where they are spiritually. I've heard things like, I love Jesus, uh, but I don't like the church. I've heard things like, my faith is very important to me, but there are many different ways uh, to get to heaven. Uh, I've heard things like, my uh, relationship with God is personal, so I don't really need uh, the church. I'm sure you've heard things like this. Maybe you've said things like this in your own life in the past. Um, but by far, the most popular description of what I hear in terms of people describing their spirituality is this. I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious, right? I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious to kind of self-proclaim oneself as spiritual. This is uh, very trendy right now. This is very, very popular. In fact, uh, a recent survey by Pew Research revealed that over 27% of adults in uh, the U.S. describe themselves this way as being spiritual, but not religious. And you probably have seen this in the various spiritual practices uh, of the rise uh, of horoscopes and aura readings and these tarot card readings, uh, these crystal healings, the, the explosive growth uh, within the New Age movement. We, we look at all of that and as Christians, we take a step back and we can see even in the midst of our country right now, many people are yearning for spirituality. Many people are craving existential truth and meaning and purpose. They're, they're wanting something more. And I think that this pursuit of that and all these various practices not only reveals this desire for spirituality, but I think it, it raises the question, what does it mean to be spiritual? What does it mean to be somebody who is yearning for spirituality? It's a really important question, especially right now in our culture. Uh, one prominent religious leader said this about spirituality, said that true spirituality as a Christian has little to do with your involvement or commitment to a local church. Whether you become a revolutionary immersed in or minimally involved in or completely disassociated from a local church is irrelevant to me and within boundaries to God. What matters is not whom you associate with, but who you are. Is that true though? Is that, is that an accurate description of spirituality? Is this what the Bible says about what it means to be spiritual. See, what I find amazing is that in 1 Corinthians 12, 
This is why I love God's word. God's word is so incredibly relevant. But the apostle Paul here, he addresses this issue of what it means to be spiritual. Like church, we don't need the, the Ouija boards. We, we don't need to, to look within ourselves to discover what spirituality actually is. God has spoken, God has revealed what it means to walk by the spirit, what biblical spirituality actually looks like. And Paul begins that discussion here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Just wanna remind us of, of where we are in this letter. We've been walking through uh, 1 Corinthians over the last several months. And we are uh, in a section right now where Paul is addressing uh, three main issues related to how the Corinthians were gathering for worship. Uh, we've looked at uh, men and women's role, uh, kind of the gender roles. We, we looked at kind of the, the, the head coverings a few weeks ago. Uh, the second issue was the Lord's Supper. We looked at that last week. And now Paul is turning a corner. He's addressing the third issue and really what seems to be the most important issue. And that has to do with, with these spiritual gifts. Paul's beginning this section in chapter 12 that will run us all the way through uh, chapter 14. And so this morning, we're really just gonna look at these first couple of verses in chapter 12, just gonna lay a foundation for us so that we can unpack this in coming weeks. But what we're going to see is in verse one, Paul's going to give a correction Verse two, he's gonna provide a contrast. And then verse three, he's going to provide a confession. So the first thing here, verse one, we notice a correction. Uh, verse one, it tells us that Paul is informing the Corinthians of something that they have misunderstood. This is most likely one of the issues or one of the questions that the Corinthians wrote to Paul about and we can tell in Paul's response that they were clearly not on the same page. And so he's beginning this correction from chapter 12, verse one, all the way through chapter 14. And what this is centered on, his correction, is what it means to be spiritual. If you look at verse one here, the, the Greek word that is translated in the ESV or NIV as spiritual gifts, I think could be better translated as spirituality or things of the spirit. Now in the ESV, NIV, I think they, they translated that spiritual gifts because that is exactly what Paul will get to in verses four through 11. And yet if you look at verse four, that Greek word for gifts there is a different Greek word than in verse one that's been translated as spiritual gifts. The, the Greek word in verse four means gracious gifts or, or a specific manifestation of the spirit's activity. But verse one, this Greek word, is translated as spiritual or the spiritual person. It's used four different times throughout 1 Corinthians, and each time it's translated as spiritual or a spiritual person or spiritual things. Even in this section of chapters 12 through 14, Paul uses this word in chapter 14, verse 37. It says, if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. So I think this word could be better translated, uh, more generally related to the things of the spirit or a spiritual person and not so narrowly as spiritual gifts. I think the, the reason for that is Paul's argument here and what he's laying out over these next few chapters has to do with correcting their understanding of what it means to be spiritual. 
And we've seen this all throughout the letter, the the Corinthians understanding of maturity and spirituality was off. That for them, they viewed the body as bad and the spirit as good. They they denied kind of the physical and the material existence of of the body. And that led led them to denying sex, to denying marriage. And, And for them, they denied even a need for the body in the future, which Paul will address in chapter 15. But even in this section here, we, we can see their, their misunderstanding of spirituality in their misuse of speaking in tongues, which Paul will address in chapter 14, this divine utterance that for the Corinthians, they thought that they had already arrived and that they were already like the angels. And so Paul is beginning this correction about what it means to be spiritual. And he unpacks that beginning in verse two here with a very effective contrast. Paul in verse two reminds them of something from their pagan past. And I think Paul's intention here is to provide this comparison that for the Corinthians, before God saved them, they were pagans and they were following and being led to a mute idol, to to mute idols in comparison to now being Christians, being followers of Jesus, they are led led by the spirit to a God who speaks, a God who communicates. Now, why is this contrast helpful? I think this contrast is helpful because it shows us that we become what we worship, that we become what we worship. Whatever we revere, whatever we worship, we resemble. And so for Paul here, what he's showing them is that the Corinthians, before Christ saved them, they were following and worshiping these speechless, mute idols. And as a result, they resembled them. They had nothing spiritual to say. They had no spiritual truth. They had no spiritual revelation. They had no form of spirituality. But now that they are Christians, and now that they are following a God who speaks, now they have something spiritual to say. Now they have a type of spirituality. And in fact, God has given them these spiritual gifts that he will unpack in order to respond to God's speaking, God's revelation. I think that's a good reminder for us that we follow a God who speaks, that God is not mute, God is not silent. He speaks to us through the power of his word. I hear this so many times, I wish God would would audibly talk to me. I wish God would audibly speak to me. I'm wrestling with a decision in my life. I wish he could just write me a letter and put it in my mailbox and just tell me what to do. Well, the reality is, is that God has spoken and he has spoken clearly through his word. In fact, over 400 times in the Bible, it says, thus saith the Lord. God speaks clearly to us in order for us to know him. And when we know him and we worship him, we have something to speak back to him. And for Paul here, specifically in the realm of spiritual gifts. And so in this contrast, he's moving the Corinthians, showing the Corinthians that true spirituality is in our ability to respond back to God because of who he is. Now for Paul, he does have something specific in mind, which leads to verse three, looking at this 
confession, this inspired confession by the Spirit of God. And when you move into verses three and then, verse, and then sections four through 11, Paul is providing two main signs of what it means to be spiritual. Again, he's addressing that question and he provides these two signs. The first one is this inspired confession. And then secondly, it has to do with these spiritual gifts given by the spirit of God, both of them produced by the spirit. Let's look at the first one here, the, this confession in verse three. Paul begins here and he says something absolutely bizarre. He says, no one who is spiritual can make the statement, Jesus is accursed. Now this seems so crazy by Paul, like were there people walking around this church saying Jesus is accursed in the church of Corinth? Probably not. Most likely, this is a hypothetical situation that Paul is bringing up as an analogy to the Corinthians' past that meant to bring kind of a shock value to them, for them to see this contrast and this comparison. Because then he says, those who are truly led by the Spirit, those who are truly spiritual, will confess that Jesus is Lord. Now, you and I, we, we look at that and we read that and we say to ourselves, surely that is not the criteria for what it means to be spiritual. Surely anybody can just say those three words, Jesus is Lord, right? This is not the litmus test for what it means to be led by the Spirit, but remember the context. Remember what it would have been like in the first century to say those three words, to say this confession, See, in Roman Corinth, to declare something is Lord meant you are pledging your full allegiance to whatever it is as your deity. Okay, so this confession, Jesus is Lord, this set the Christians apart from the Jews who thought that statement was blasphemous, and it set them apart from the rest of the population, the pagans there in Rome and in Corinth who believed and accepted all of the cults, who believed and accepted all of the lowercase g gods and even declared Caesar is Lord. And so this confession, this statement was very, very costly for the first century Christian. This cost them socially, uh, friends would no longer hang out with them because of this statement. This was a financial cost to them with financial implications. People would no longer do business with you. This confession had even implications related to persecution. And look, in the first century here, this is not just a spiritual statement. This was also a political statement. Saying that Jesus is Lord was a de declaration that Caesar is not Lord. This is a declaration that Caesar or, or the Roman government does not have the final authority, only Jesus does. That Caesar is not sitting on the throne with all power, Jesus is. That Rome, and by application for us this morning, any government, any country, including the United States of America, as great of a country that we live in, does not demand our full allegiance. Only Jesus gets our full allegiance as followers of Christ. And I think this is what is behind the most succinct summary 
of what it means to be saved in the whole New Testament, Romans chapter 10, verse nine. Paul says, if anyone confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised, the, raised him from the dead, they will be saved. We look at that and we say, that is such a simple formula. Anybody can say that. But once again, Paul writing to the Romans, they're in Rome. That is a statement and a confession that was very costly for the Christians. That Jesus, the crucified one, is by his resurrection, Lord of the whole universe. And the response to that confession is I submit to him. I surrender to King Jesus. I don't make Jesus Lord. He already is Lord. My response to that is to surrender to his lordship that extends over every area of my life and over the entire universe. That's what it means to be spiritual. That's what it means to be a Christian. And to get to that point, one must be filled and walking in the spirit. I love how Leon Morris uh, describes it. He says that the lordship of Christ is not a human discovery. We don't discover it on our own. It is a discovery that is made and can be made only when the spirit is at work in the heart. So Paul points to what it means to be spiritual, what it means to be led by the spirit. You evaluate how you worship Jesus and how you are following Jesus. And look, this is a challenge to not only those who claim to be spiritual but not religious. This is not only a challenge for those in the New Age movement. This is a challenge for church-going Christians today. Jesus declares in Luke 6:45, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Right? Very challenging passage there. And so taking what Jesus declares there, let's combine it with what the apostle Paul is saying. And we could say something like this, out of the overflow of the spirit's supernatural work in one's heart, the mouth confesses that Jesus is Lord. But this is not some empty, hollow, religious sounding formula that to get to that point, the spirit must renovate the heart because Jesus is king over your life, because Jesus is sitting on the throne there and nothing else is. See, this is not a hollow declaration, Jesus is Lord. No, this is a wholehearted confession out of deep conviction, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is king, and my lifestyle matches that confession. Maybe to take a different angle on this, Jesus also says in Matthew 7, notice this, he says, very convicting passages. He says, not everyone who says to me or not everyone who confesses, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Notice the contrast here. Notice that we have people who are doing religious looking activities 
compared to knowing Jesus. We have people with an empty, hollow confession, Lord, Lord, and yet their hearts were far from Jesus. Look, church, unfortunately, many people will miss heaven by 18 inches. 18 inches is the the distance between one's head and one's heart. That many have a lot of Bible in their head, but Christ is far from their hearts. That many know a lot about Jesus, but they do not know Jesus. That many are religious and yet they are lost. One of the aspects of being a pastor that I really uh, enjoy is officiating weddings. I, I love the, the whole process of, of kind of going through premarital counseling, getting to know the couple, and then conducting the wedding ceremony. And there's, there's this moment that, uh, that just fills me uh, with such a, a wonder about marriage and how God has instituted marriage. It's the sacred moment in the ceremony where the bride and the groom, they, they turn to one another and in front of God, in front of these witnesses, they make these vows, these, these, these confessions, these covenants, these promises that they are declaring to one another in front of God, in front of these witnesses. And it's so sacred for me to, to know this couple, to, to see their lives, to see how they treat one another and have this moment where their confession is actually lining up with their lifestyle. Right? Their, their actions and their behaviors mirror what they are confessing to one another. Right? In, in that moment, if it was known to everybody that this bride and groom were unfaithful to one another, were unloving to one another, and they're making this confession that they're gonna be together till death do them part, like everybody would say, that's an empty confession. That's a hollow confession. That's not what love or marriage is. My question for you today is, could the same be said about your confession about Jesus being Lord? Could the same thing be said of your statement that I believe in God, I'm religious, I go to church, I believe in the Bible, I believe in Jesus, but does your lifestyle match your confession? Do you know Jesus, and are you submitting to his lordship? Look, that's what it means to be spiritual. That is biblical spirituality. It is this inspired confession by the Holy Spirit when a lifestyle matches that confession. So that's the first sign. The second sign I think Paul provides here, as far as what it means to be spiritual, has to do with these grace gifts or these spiritual gifts. And this is really verses four through 11. Today, I'm just gonna lay a foundation today about what it means to, uh, to be gifted spiritually by the spirit of God. And in coming weeks, I'm gonna unpack this more because again, this is a, another topic within the church that's vastly uh, debated. And so this morning, I just want us to zoom out for a moment and understand what spiritual gifts are. And I wanna to begin today uh, just with a, uh, just a basic definition. This is from Wayne Grudem, just to kind of ground us on the floor level. What is a spiritual gift? A spiritual gift is an ability empowered by the Holy Spirit 
and used in the ministry of the church. Okay, it's just a basic definition. And for, for me, what's really helpful in understanding a concept, especially in the Bible, I love to start with what something is not, right? So let's maybe talk about what spiritual gifts are not for a moment. Okay, let me give you a few. The first one here is that spiritual gifts should not be confused with a talent or a skill. Spiritual gifts should not be confused with a talent or a skill. In other words, just because you're good at something does not automatically mean that's your spiritual gift, right? You can be talented at something and yet not empowered by the spirit of God, right? Or flip that around. You could actually be empowered by the spirit. Something could be your spiritual gift and you may not be very good at it in the beginning. I remember my first couple of teachings years ago, they were train wrecks, right? There, there was a little bit of sign, maybe you're gifted here, but they were not very good. And so just to automatically equate with being skilled or talented with a spiritual gift, I think is a danger that we need to avoid. Secondly, a spiritual gift is not salvation, okay? Some within the evangelical world, specifically in the Pentecostal stream, believe that you must exercise a spiritual gift in order to be saved. And for them, it's usually speaking in tongues. And I think that is an unhealthy intermingling of salvation with spiritual gifts that we do not see as normative throughout the New Testament. And while I think it's a sign of maybe immaturity to not know your spiritual gift, to not use your spiritual gift, it is not a sign that you are not saved. Okay, thirdly, um, spiritual gifts are not to be confused with spiritual maturity. Okay, just because you are spiritually gifted does not automatically mean that you are mature. Take the church in Corinth, for example. You remember chapter one, verses four and five, Paul is thanking God because God has richly blessed them with every spiritual gift related to knowledge and speech. And yet we've seen just how spiritually immature this church actually is. And so look, you can be gifted spiritually and yet bankrupt in character and integrity. All right, that's a danger for us this morning. You can be a wonderful teacher. You can be very hospitable. You can be a great servant, a, a great encourager. You can be very generous and yet be spiritually shallow. And we're gonna talk more about that in coming weeks. Fourth, another um, misconception about spiritual gifts is that they are not to be used for personal boasting or personal gain. You were given a spiritual gift not because of you, but because of the generosity of God, right? Th these gifts are, are acts of God's grace, that you don't deserve these spiritual gifts. You didn't earn them. Therefore, they are not a, a reason for you to boast or brag about them. You have been given a spiritual gift to be used for the glory of God, the edification of other Christians, and the building up of Christ church, not to shine a spotlight on yourself, okay? So we've got a definition. We've got some things that, that spiritual gifts are not. Let me provide a list of spiritual gifts that we see throughout uh, the New Testament, okay? I want you to see, kind of get a visual here, and some of these gifts show up in multiple uh, lists here throughout uh, the New Testament. These are four, and, and some people would say these are the five lists that we see uh, of the amount of spiritual gifts throughout the New Testament. 
And, um, and we're gonna unpack and define and explain each of these incoming weeks. But this morning, I just want you to visualize how many we have, how many that we see in uh, the New Testament. A couple of things about these lists. Number one, these uh, lists are not exhaustive. Okay, there's not one list that lists every spiritual gift in uh, the New Testament. Some include others, others leave other gifts off. So they're not exhaustive. Secondly, um, these are not listed in order of importance. Okay, so the first one that's listed, it's not like, oh yeah, this is the best uh, spiritual gift, right? The New Testament doesn't really talk about gifts in that way. And then thirdly, this is important to know, there is a wide spectrum within the evangelical world about which of these gifts are still active today and to what degree they are still active uh, today. And specifically, it has to do with these miraculous gifts or the sign gifts, okay? These are specifically speaking in tongues, uh, prophecy, and the gift of healing, okay, in in particular. And there's debate about how active those are today. Just to give you kind of a visual about the four main views about those uh, miraculous gifts and its, its continued activity today, uh, there are these four most popular views. You, you look at sensationalism, sensationism uh, on the far left side there. Th- this view believes that these miraculous get, gifts have ceased today, that they existed in the first century, in the apostolic age, but they are no longer active uh, today. The second uh, view there, uh, one to the right there, is the open but cautious view. This view states that, that maybe these miraculous gifts are still active today, but they are certainly not normative. That you might see these miraculous gifts where the gospel is going forth in a, in a part of the world where it has not gone before. And so uh, the spirit of God uses these miraculous gifts to kind of validate the power of God in and through the gospel. You kind of see that throughout Acts, uh, but it's open, but very, very cautious. And then you've got this third view here, the Pentecostal charismatic view, and there's a wide spectrum within there, but they believe that all of the gifts of the Spirit continue today and are and should be uh, normative, okay? They disagree on on what exactly happens uh, in the baptism and the role of the Spirit and the speaking in tongues, uh, but they are kind of full on uh, with, with these gifts, And then there's a fourth view that's becoming more and more popular today, kind of the the third wave or um, what some call the the, the charismatics with seatbelts, if you will. But this view believes that the preaching of the gospel should accompany some of these gifts at some times, that because the gospel is so powerful and such good news, that the Spirit of God will, will cause the people of God to respond in some of these uh, spiritual gifts. Okay, so, so those are just a couple of views and, and we'll get to kind of the, the view that I hold or that our church holds predominantly uh, in coming weeks. And there's so much more that we're gonna get to with spiritual weeks uh, or with, uh, with spiritual gifts in coming weeks. But um, over the next four weeks, we're actually going to press pause on 1 Corinthians and we're gonna talk about the Holy Spirit. Okay, this third member of the Trinity that, uh, that, that some of us really don't know a lot about and yet his role related to spiritual gifts is so intimately connected. We wanna take the month of July and, and talk about more about who the Holy Spirit is and what his work is to help us under, understand spiritual gifts uh, more. But as I close this morning, I wanna answer the question, 
What does this passage teach us about God? All right, what does this passage teach us about God? And look, when you're reading the Bible and studying the Bible, that is such an important question to ask. Like we read the Bible, we study the Bible, so it leads us towards adoration of God, towards worship of God, towards enjoyment of God. We don't read the Bible or, or preach the Bible for, for practical self-help tips. We read and study the Bible so it leads us to a better understanding of God that leads us to worship. So one of the biggest things that stands out to me in this passage is the incredible generosity of God. Like when you, when you look at this passage and you look at spiritual gifts, like one of the things that it just stunned me this week, thinking about the vast, deep, unending well of grace that God has, that he draws from in lavishing upon his children grace after grace after grace. I want you to just think about this for a moment, just how the Bible describes our position before God saved us. Just think about that for a moment. We were not in good standing before God, before God saved us. The Bible describes our position as being lost, as being hopeless, and very bluntly as being dead in our sins. And the Bible uses that kind of language to teach us that, that we were unable to save ourselves. We were unable to, to do anything about this predicament of, of being guilty and condemned. On top of that, the Bible describes our position as being enemies of God, that our sin is cosmic treason against God. So it's not like we're just not on good terms. We were his enemies. And in fact, the Bible describes our position as being cursed with sin. At Genesis 3, the, the results of the fall means that all of humanity has the curse of sin upon us. And when I got to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse three, when Paul says, no one who is spiritual will say Jesus is accursed, my mind went immediately to Galatians chapter three. Galatians three, then this is a beautiful kind of summary of the gospel. It says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. They're referring to the cross so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Notice the gospel, notice the good news in this passage is that Jesus Christ has redeemed us by taking our place, taking the curse upon himself. That as Jesus was hanging there, taking our sin, taking our penalty, taking the curse of sin upon himself, he died in your place. And, and the amazing generosity of God the, the amazing initiating mercy of God is that he takes all that Jesus accomplished and he, he actually applies it to your life if you have your faith and trust upon it. He takes all that Jesus did and he says, it is yours. And so look, now you are not cursed. Now you are accepted. Now you are not enemies of God, now you are adopted into his family as a son and a daughter. Now you're not dead in your sins, but you are alive in Christ. 
that, that now you're not in the kingdom of darkness. You're in the kingdom of his son. That now you're not condemned, you're not guilty, but now in Jesus, you are forgiven and you are righteous and you are eternally loved because of what Jesus has done for you. And look, that is true. If you place your faith upon Jesus, turn from your sins and make this confession, Jesus, you are Lord, you are King, and I submit myself to you. Look, I wonder if some of us need to be reminded of that today. Some of us need to be reminded of all that Jesus has done for us. Maybe you've been walking through life and you've been thinking that you're a true follower of Jesus, truly spiritual, and yet your confession, your thinking has been, it's been empty. It's been hollow. It's not been matched by a lifestyle that surrendered everything to Jesus. And so this morning, just wanna give you an opportunity even to, to respond today. We're gonna sing one last song and if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're here and you haven't placed your faith upon Jesus, we would love to have a conversation with you. We'll have leaders at the next steps table right outside this room that would love to explain what it means to follow Jesus and to surrender every area of your life to him. But church, don't miss this. In God's incredible generosity, he not only saves us, he not only forgives us of our sins, but he lavishes these spiritual gifts upon us. What a great God. What a good God that we have who gives us these gifts so that we can rightly respond to all that he is. Man, God treats us so much better than what we deserve. And we don't even know the depths of that statement. He treats us so much better than what we deserve. What grace, what generosity, what a good God we serve. Let's pray together. God, we give you praise this morning. Lord, you stun us time and time again with your goodness, with your mercy, with your grace. God, we thank you for this passage. Lord, a passage that can so easily become uh, me-centered and what you've given to me. God, we wanna turn that back and say, no, no, you are the generous God. You are the center of this passage. So God, we give you praise. Would you fill our hearts, Lord, with an awe right now, with a wonder about how good and kind and generous you are. We'll give you praise for that in Jesus' name, amen.